Turn with me again, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. We are going to uh, to look this morning at verses 12 through 21. Let's ask the Lord to lead us this morning as we look into his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have divinely appointed this morning for us to meet with you. And Lord, you have appointed this text for us to consider. And Lord, it is a um, a grievous text, one that we look at and we shudder at as we think about it. But Father, we rejoice in the fact that this was written for our good, for our blessing. And we're reminded this morning that you have bruised the serpent's head. You have mortally wounded the enemy. And we're reminded of that in this passage this morning, Father, as we think about the sovereignty that you exercise even over the enemy and the wicked one. So, Father, I pray that this passage this morning, as we look at your word, will be a source of encouragement to your people, that you will strengthen us and empower us to live in a way that is pleasing to you in this wicked and perverse generation in which we live. And Father, for those who are here this morning that do not know you, let your grace and your mercy be proclaimed. And let them be reminded, Father, that today is the day. Now is the time to repent because your judgment is coming. We ask that you would help us this morning. Most importantly, Lord, that you would be glorified. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So last week we looked at the fifth trumpet beginning in Revelation chapter nine. And I just want to give you a quick reminder of what we looked at. And our brother this morning rightfully reminded us that when God demonstrates his justice, he also does demonstrate his mercy simultaneously. And that's what um, this picture is in Revelation chapter nine. So the fifth trumpet is a picture of the devil's army being released as a judgment on sinful humanity. And the scripture describes it in John's vision as the first of three woes. Verse one says, the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he, that is the star, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power. Like the power of scorpions of the earth, they were told not to harm the the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Excuse me. In summary, what we looked at last week is this. Satan has been cast out of the kingdom of God. He is an apostate angel. And he's angry because he has been put down. And his heavenly coup attempt has failed. 
He's been deposed to the earth and he has set up his kingdom here. He is doing everything here that he could not do there. He has a throne here to exercise dominion and authority. He has an army. He has a church. He has his own doctrine. He has his own gospel. And he has his own subjects or worshipers. He has an agenda. And he has powerful tools at his disposal and the urgency to use those. And he knows his time is short. And Satan is at war with his enemy and anyone that threatens his kingdom. Say, well, that's kind of bleak, Danny. But that's not the end of the story. And so you say, well, why is this in here? Well, again, I want to remind you as we opened up our study in the book of Revelation that Revelation is written for the encouragement of who? Church. It's written to the seven churches. Now, there are those who try and make the seven churches different periods of time, but I want you to understand the seven churches are seven real churches in Asia Minor that were going through real trials, real tribulations, real suffering at the time John wrote this. This had present day implications for that church, and it has present day implications for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ until what? Until he comes back. And all these things are fulfilled. But I want you to see that there is woe here to the earth dwellers. And we've looked at in detail at what the earth dwellers are. The earth dwellers are those whose citizenship belongs here. This is home. And it's a good touch point to ask ourselves, how tightly are we gripping here? One way of knowing that is... When was the last time you asked the Lord Jesus to come, to come back? Think, well, so much I want to see, so much I want to accomplish, so much I want to achieve before the Lord returns. But the reality is, is there is no fulfillment in any experience in this life that would supersede that of the Lord's return. So what are the applications or blessings here for the church? Well, one of Revelation's primary blessings is adjusting the church's perspective to see things from God's perspective. Revelation is giving us a heavenly view of redemptive history. That heavenly view is often very different from how we view history. It is preparing the church for spiritual warfare not a comfortable topic that we like to talk about. We like to be at peace. We don't like war. We don't like taking up arms. The picture here and the blessing for the church who was literally in the synagogue of, or present with the synagogue of Satan, we find, as we looked at last week, where Satan's throne is, is that the church needs to know the truth. They need to know the truth. We cannot be prepared to fight and engage in spiritual conflict if we don't know that it's happening. As we talked about after the service last week, there are some of us who live with the ostrich approach, which is I take my my long scrawny neck and I take my head and I bury it in the sand. And it's like playing peekaboo as a little child. You think, 
Oh, I can't be seen because I'm hiding my face. We're fooling ourselves. The reality of it is, is the church is at war. And the enemy is Satan. And we look around and we see the rising tide of evil. Things are not, though, what they seem to be. We talked about that in our Bible study this morning. God is bringing judgment on the nation of Israel. Three years of drought. Okay? And yet, in the middle of that, he's working his redemptive history by saving a Gentile widow. So while we see evil at large around us, we see God's judgment. He's also, what is not seen many times, is the redeeming work of his hand, doing all of those things. In the background, he's saving his people. He is calling out a people for himself. And remember, we looked at, lastly, last week, our cause for rejoicing was not that Satan is subject to us. Remember the 72 elder or the 72 disciples in Luke chapter 10 who came back to the Lord Jesus all excited and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But what? Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Your names are written in heaven. Notice he did not tell those disciples, rejoice because you will be raptured out before it gets bad. I know it's commonly taught in American evangelicalism that when things get really bad, when things get really evil, we're going to be extracted out. That's not the point of encouragement here. Did you did you see what I what I read to you in the fifth trumpet? Satan is released to bring about judgment and and exercise torture on the earth dwellers. And he was what limited to, to who? Only the earth dwellers. He was not to touch those who were sealed by by had the seal of God in their foreheads. Now, what is that? That is a symbolic picture of what? The Holy Spirit. In in Ephesians chapter 1, we're reminded that we are bought and we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. If the Spirit of God resides in you, Satan cannot have you. He can't. You are untouchable. You say, well, does that mean I can't? I'm not engaged in spiritual warfare. There's no pain. There's no uh, affliction of the wicked one. No. You're out of his reach. His ultimate aim, his ultimate desire is to destroy you spiritually. To damn your soul to hell. And he has the power to do that on those who dwell on the earth. And as we move from the fifth trumpet, we see an increase in judgment, don't we? There's a heightened sense of progressive progression in judgment here from the fifth trumpet to the sixth trumpet. Our cause for rejoicing is not that Satan is, is under our heel, because Christ has conquered him, by the way. He knows he's defeated. When was he conquered? On the cross. But your cause for celebration is that your name is written in the book of life. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, you are out of Satan's grasp. Does the Lord know how 
to protect his remnant. Well, we learned this morning that yes, he does. Second Peter chapter 2, or if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, talked about him this morning, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, Peter gives us a reminder here that's important. As we see the judgment of God temporarily brought upon this world, and we're seeing it now. If we see the judgment of God brought on this world, it is a reminder just like the Lord Jesus told those who the Tower of Siloam fell on and those who had been murdered by a wicked Roman ruler, he said, unless you repent, the same thing will happen to you. But notice what Peter says, the, the, the turning of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes in an, in, in an extinction occurrence where God destroys the city He said it's an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, that's not a popular thing to preach. It's not a popular thing to say. You're not going to win many friends to your cause. But that doesn't make it less true. And because God judged Sodom and Gomorrah to remind the rest of the world of what he is going to do with the unrepentant, ungodly. It's to get our attention. Second Peter chapter two, and and I am at verse seven. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly, think about this, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And listen to this. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of the defiling passion and despise authority. We love to emphasize certain characteristics of the character of God, certain attributes. But if we're to be biblical, we must take the whole of God's character. It's one thing to emphasize is love, and he is a loving God. We're proof of that. But for us to exclude the holiness of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, is to lie about who he is. And here we have the full character of God on display. He is protecting those who are sealed by his spirit while simultaneously judging the world and laying bare for the entire world to see the blackness and the darkness of their sinful hearts. Say, well, how do we know that? Well, let's let's look here. I want to look verses 12 through 19 this morning. I have two points um, as we look at um, the sixth trumpet. And we see the first woe has passed. Behold, two more woes are still to come. So we're looking this morning at the second woe. 
And I want you to, I want to remind you that this is a, a similar picture. We have the, the, the seven seals, we have the seven trumpets, and then we have the seven bowls or the seven vials. These are all pictures of the same thing from a slightly different angle. Okay. So we're looking at now the sixth trumpet, which is the second cycle of judgment that we're shown in the book of Revelation. In, in point number one, we have the four angels who are bound released. The four angels who are bound are released in Revelation chapter 9, verse 12. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes still to come. Meaning the vision of the first woe has passed, but not the chronological passing of the events. Does that make sense? We often look at this and say, well, what part of history is this taking place in? Is this past, present, or future? It doesn't tell us that. And there's a reason why. Okay? And we're curious by nature. But what happens when we think we know the date? Man, I got another 150 years. I don't need to get serious about the return of Christ. And, and we've seen it time and time again. There have been prognosticators of the return of Christ who take the account in the book of Revelation and they try feverishly to apply it to current everyday circumstances. And by the way, there is application for us today, but they warp it and twist it to get it to fit what they want it to do. And it's amazing as you read some of the commentators, I read a lot of old commentators because the old guys are the best guys. They don't tend to get better with time, by the way. But even the old guys had their present day twists on how they would interpret some of the things that they saw in the book of Revelation. It's very interesting, but we can easily get off track there. But what of these woes? Well, Revelation 8.13 ends the chapter in, in chapter 8. It says, then I looked and I heard an eagle cry with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So you have here a triple woe. Whenever we see scripture repeated, especially three times, there's an emphasis there. And we don't see it often in scripture. We see it in Isaiah 6, where what attribute of God is repeated three times? Holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you think that's important? Yes. When scripture here repeats, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's to get our attention. And I, I read in, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gives a pronouncement of seven woes against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Seven. R.C. Sproul says, anytime you see the word woe in sacred scripture, you need to take notice because this is the strongest verbal form of judgment and warning that, that God gives by his prophets. How much more so when Jesus pronounces seven times woes against the religious leaders of his day? Verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. 
John hears a voice. It doesn't tell us what or who the voice is from, but he tells us where the voice comes from. And it brings our focus back to the altar. Where have we seen the altar so far in our study in the book of Revelation? Revelation 6, 9 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain from, for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will, adjud- you will judge and avenge our blood on who? Those who dwell on the earth. And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In Revelation 8, verses 3 through 5, which is the seventh seal, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altars before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The altar, if you remember, has been a picture of the suffering of saints and their prayer. And the pleasing aroma of the prayers of the saints before the Heavenly Father. And it is a picture of the fervent, righteous prayer having much power with God. Now, I I completely twisted that verse. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, the scripture says. But what is the picture here? The picture is that the saints, the suffering church, is crying out to God for relief crying out to God for justice, crying out to God for mercy in their suffering. And what happens? Does God ignore that prayer? No, he acts on it. You see, God not only ordains the ends, but he ordains the means. One of the means that God uses to act in redemptive history is what? The prayer of the saints. Is prayer important? vitally important. Our prayer does not change God, but as I said, it brings us into alignment with the will, the perfect will of God, and he is pleased through the work of his son to hear us pray. He is well pleased with you as a child of God because of Jesus, and when when the saints cry out to him in anguish and pain, Because they are being martyred, he listens. And this is God acting. Revelation chapter 8, when we see the trumpets, the the introduction of the trumpet judgments is the response of God to his people praying. And so here it is, is a picture of the four horns. John hears this voice from the four horns. Well, what is that a picture of? Well, let's let's use scripture to interpret scripture. Ezekiel 43, 18. He said to me, son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar. On the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood upon it, you shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok who draw near to me 
to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And listen to this. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, the four corners of the altar, of the ledge and upon the rim all around. Thus you shall purify the altar and make atonement for it. What is that a picture of? But he's telling the priest to take the blood of the bull. The bull is a picture of what? Come on, guys. I know you're awake. The blood from the bull is a picture of what? Atonement. Yes, the work of Christ. By By the shedding of blood, there is what? Of bulls and goats, there is no remission of sin. The picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system was always pointing forward to the coming Messiah. So when he says you take the bull from and put it on the full horns, it's talking about a complete and total atonement. All four corners of the altar are covered. So when John says, I'm hearing from the four horns of the altar, it's a picture of the completeness of the cry of the saints and of the redemptive work of the Savior who is pleased to act on behalf of his people. So John here is seeing the the preeminent role that the prayers of the saints play in bringing redemption and redemptive history to a full and final conclusion. Praying and asking the Lord to come back soon pleases him. You think, do you ever tell your, your husband or your wife, if you have to leave for work in the morning, I'll miss you, or I'm looking forward to seeing you? Think that pleases them? We're pleased to be with those that we love. And so the picture here, the Lord Jesus is pleased to think about the scripture talks about the marriage of the lamb. But nothing will stir the saints to pray more fervently than an increase in lawlessness and spiritual warfare and the desire to see the return of the savior. Think about Lot. Do you think Lot prayed? The scripture says his soul was vexed by what he saw, what he heard. And what did the Lord do? The Lord delivered him. He didn't come out unscathed, however, but the Lord delivered him. Verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, this is where you set the scripture down and you go to YouTube. And you start looking up videos of the four angels bound in the river. Don't do that. Because there's lots of them, trust me. So what do we make of this? What do we make of the four angels bound at the river Euphrates? There's lots of fantastical and creative takes on what this is. And second coming prognosticators get very creative when they start working out what this looks like. But remember, this is symbolism here. And and much of what we see when we saw the, the picture of the locust last week, are we really looking for armored clad locusts to attack planet Earth? Is that what we're looking for? You say, no, Danny, that's spiritual symbolism. Yes, it is. But, man, we, we, 
we can so easily twist the scripture. The picture that we looked at with the fifth seal, the, the army of locusts is spiritual warfare. These are pictures of, and this is the apostle John describing for us to have an understanding of the army of the wicked one. And locusts bring with them great destruction, like three years of drought would. Think about a, 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 a host of locusts that sweeps across the land for five months. There's no green left, let alone crunchy grass to walk on from a drought. We overlook the plain meaning sometimes to get really creative. So what, what about the four angels? Well, remember, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls are all pictures of the same thing. And we looked at the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 7. Let me read this for you. Revelation 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. You remember what we talked about when we looked at that passage. There is a restraint that, the, that, that God is bringing against the four winds of the earth. Now, what are the four winds of the earth? We talked about the fact that the four winds are symbolic of spiritual harm. Spiritual activity that is harmful. Why? That no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. The picture here of the, the four angels who are bound, we see the same Greek word used in Acts chapter 9 when Paul or Saul at that time in Acts 9 verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Same word there. So the picture is these four angels are bound at the river. Brother, you actually talked about Euphrates this morning, which I thought was interesting. So what is, what is this picture? of the Euphrates. So I did a lot of map study. Israel is right here. We have Egypt and the Nile. And then over here you have the Tigris and then you have the Euphrates. So Israel is, is essentially protected by the Nile, the Euphrates and the Tigris over here. In scripture, this picture is readily understood, I believe, by those present-day recipients of this letter. And I'll tell you why. Both the dispersed Jews in Asia Minor, who were part of these seven churches, and also the Gentiles in the church under Roman rule would have recognized the, the historical significance to Israel and the present-day significance. So for the Roman Empire, on the other side of the Euphrates was the Parthenian Empire. They were the, the thorn in the side of the Romans. But what about for Israel? Who was on the other side of the Euphrates? Babylon. We have, if you look carefully, you have Media or the Medes, Persians. You have 
Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to cross the Euphrates, did he? That's where the unclean are. But I want you to see that that for the church, they would have readily recognized that the Euphrates here is a picture of the natural defense or border of the nation. Okay? Exodus 23, 31. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to what? The Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Second Chronicles chapter nine. We looked um, in our study in first Kings. This is just a restatement of it. Second Chronicles 9.22. Thus Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver, gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, and so much year by year. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls of horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Listen to this. And he ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. Are you seeing the, the picture the map is drawing for us here. Also in scripture, when God warns of impending judgment, he talks about judgment coming from where? Beyond the Euphrates, okay? We have the natural border of the land of Israel where they're protected geographically by the natural border of the Euphrates and the Nile. But enemies from beyond the great river was a massive warning of judgment. And the Assyrians, we said the Medes, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. If you want to research this further, Isaiah 7, 20 and 8, 7 are good verses to look at. But Jeremiah 46, 10 says this, that that day is the day of the Lord of hosts, the day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river of Euphrates. So what is this picture here showing us? What's happening is that the fence of protection is being lowered. That's the picture here that we're seeing with these four angels who have been bound at the river Euphrates. God has put up a border and said, you can go this far and no further. But now as he is judging humanity, what is he doing? He's lowering and removing that restraint. In fact, as we study the vials, the picture of the vials further into the book of Revelation in chapter 16, verse 12, listen, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So what happens? Take away the water, that natural border of protection, what happens? Coincidentally, I was listening to the news this week. Border crossings are down. Why? On our southern border. Why? The flood's up. Right? As, as the, um, can't even think of our own river. The Rio Grande. Thank you. As the Rio Grande is up because of flooding, what happens? There's a natural border there that people are not going to cross at least without taking their lives in their hands. 
So the fence of protection is being removed. Mark, you hit on the key here. What spiritual wickedness is brought to mind when we think of the geographical location of the river Euphrates? Because the book of Revelation will increasingly teach us about this spiritual wickedness. Where is this wickedness located? So when it's alluding to the river Euphrates, it's telling us the nature and the character of this spiritual wickedness that has been restrained. Mm -hmm. All right. So Babylon is an allusion to what we will see become a major player in the picture given us in the book of Revelation. Babylon is a picture of spiritual wickedness that is what? Religious in nature. Babylon is Satan's church. So there's a picture here that when you talk about the Euphrates, immediately would capture the hearing of those present at that time. So what we're thinking about, how are four angels chained underwater in the river? No, we're missing it. We're missing it. I even heard somebody say, well, now that the Euphrates is drying up, are now free to get out. As if the depth of water could hold back satanic or demonic activity. Oh, look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Revelation 16, 9, the great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. The picture of Babylon is going to come into much closer focus as we progress in our study in the book of Revelation. But for now, we're seeing Satan, his restraint removed, and the scriptures telling us the nature of the spiritual wickedness coming from Babylon. What is the picture of Babylon in, in the book of Revelation? Revelation 17, 5. On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and averse abominations. And then listen to this, Revelation 18, 2. He called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become, listen, a dwelling place for demons a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. This is the picture of the nature of spiritual wickedness and, and the deception that is being released on humanity as a judgment. And the nature of that is humanity. Think about this. Humanity is religious. What does humanity do? As we read further, we find that humanity will not repent of what? Idols. We don't have a worship problem. We're worshiping the wrong thing. Verse 15, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. What is scripture telling us here? The picture here is yet again a reminder of God's sovereign rule over these evil forces of judgment. Just like the four horsemen we saw 
with the opening of the seven seals. These are chomping at the bit to do their worst. Again, just like Pharaoh, God is not creating new sin in the hearts of the unrepentant. He is revealing what is already in their hearts. That's incredibly important for us to understand. When God brings judgment on humanity and we find those who who, um, survived a third of the killing of humanity here, the picture here is of spiritual judgment and death. Those who survive it refuse to repent. Outside of the ones who are sealed by the Spirit of God, they've repented. Why do they refuse to repent? This judgment exposes them for what they are. Remember we read John chapter 3. Jesus did not come to judge. He that believeth not is what? Judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Men love darkness, what? Rather than light because their deeds are evil. The judgment of God here is exposing the wickedness of humanity's heart. The depravity, the darkness. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Saw a debate this week between two Christians and two atheists. And it was an interesting debate. Um, But one of the Christians rightly pointed out, you are actively suppressing the truth. You who claim to be an atheist or an agnostic, who think that it is unknowable to know that God exists, no, you know, you're suppressing it. They ignore the eternal power of the creator. And I want you to see something in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. I don't have time to read, but verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. To the question of, and we looked at this with Pharaoh, to the question of, is God creating new sin? The scripture said, and it alternates in the book of Exodus, God hardened Pharaoh. And then we see Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, what's happening there? What is happening is God is giving mankind over to the sinfulness of his and her own hearts, the darkness of their own hearts. God's not creating new sin within them. No, not he that is holy, holy, holy. He's not not creating sin in the heart of man. But guess what? Jesus said, out of the heart proceeds what? Every vile evil comes from here. We can blame Satan and we can blame God all we want, but the problem with sin is right here. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, God gave them up to what? Dishonorable passions. They reject the creator and the created ordinance of marriage. And what happens? They burn in their lust and unnatural relations. And then verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to what? A debased mind. 
to do what ought not be done. Is God making evil men worse? No. He's giving them over to themselves. This is judgment. This is the wrath of God on display. When God removes his hand of restraint, what do we see? Men at their worst. We tend to think that, look, if the environment's just right and you give people enough money, they get better. No. What you have in ordered society is the restraint against wickedness that the law brings. But what happens when men refuse to obey the law? You say, well, we need more laws. Is that the answer? (laughs) No, more laws don't stop lawlessness, do they? Why do bad people not obey the law? And they keep doing things. And we see all this evil around us and our lawmakers say, well, we need more laws. No, we need different hearts. We need changed hearts. It's not the problem with the law. The problem is with the lawlessness in us. But I want you to see something. Who does the giving up? Who does the giving up? God does. This is an important point. Lest we think that so-and-so is beyond the pale of redemption. They have gone too far. They cannot be saved. What does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, they're too far. We can't, there's no rescue for them. The idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, they're beyond the reach of God. No, he says, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Nobody who practices these these sins will or can inherit the kingdom of God. But I want you to notice what he says. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. It's important for us to understand this. I am not God. It is not for me to give up a sinner and give him over to his own wickedness and his own judgment. That belongs to God. Until then, what are we to do? We're to tell sinners the truth. And as I talked about last week, we are engaged in a rescue operation where we're taking people that are in bondage in the, in the kingdom of Satan and extracting them and bringing them into the kingdom of, of Christ. That's the work of the gospel. That's what Jesus does in rescuing cold, dead-hearted sinners, bringing them out of the, the, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And such were some of you. It is not for me to worry about who God gives up. It is us for know that, that, that God does give up in judgment, but that's for him. We're not God. But the picture here is of satanic judgment on the earth dwellers. And it should sober us. Look at verse 16. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's a lot. So the picture here is of a double plural. And we've already seen that in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5.11. John says, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands. 
What is the picture here? Here is an army that you can't number. You can't. 200 million. Was John counting individually how many demons the picture is portraying? No. It's an innumerable army. The picture is of superior strength. And it harkens back to the locusts in the fifth trumpet. And I want you to see in verse 17, this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of horses were like lion's heads. Fire, smoke, and sulfur came out of their mouths. It's painting a picture for us. And what is the picture here? The enemy is terrible in his strength. Guess what? He's superior to you and I. When we see the picture of horses, that also painted a contemporary picture for them. Rome and its mounted army would have struck fear into the heart of those living in Israel when they heard the pounding of those horses as they entered the city to get their tribute one way, shape, or form. It's a terrible, frightening picture. And I want you to see the emphasis is on what comes out of their mouths. The danger is in their mouths. This is the gospel, by the way, of idols. Remember Jesus said to John in John chapter 8, referring to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and you will do, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is directly tying Satan and his deception to murder. Why? Because it is the deception that leads to the spiritual demise of sinful humanity. Revelation 19.20, and the beast here picturing um, fire and sulfur, the beast was captured with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The picture here, again, is a picture of judgment. Verse 18, by these three plagues, fire, smoke, and sulfur, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur. Notice coming out of their mouths. What's the significance of the mouth? Well, Revelation 13 Verse 5, and the beast was given, listen, a mouth uttering haughty or haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months and it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Revelation chapter 12, talking about spiritual warfare and how Satan attacks the church. Listen to this. Verse 12 or verse 13 of Revelation 12. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down into the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Just a little hint of what's coming when we get to Revelation 12. We're away from that. This is a picture of the church. And what does Satan do regarding the church? Verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and a times and a half a time, 
the serpent, the serpent poured water like a river out what? Of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. What is Satan's attack against the church? What is it? It's deception. It's false doctrine. False teaching. It's another gospel. That's why Paul says and uses the word strongly. If anybody, even an angel from heaven, brings you another gospel other than what you have heard regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, let them be what? Accursed. Why? Because a false gospel kills. It is poison. It will destroy your soul. And if you believe it without repentance, you will be eternally damned. The serpent poured out water like a river. And then verse 16, but the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Again, spiritual symbolism here that's that's reminding us of the nature and the character of the enemy and what he is doing to kill humanity. The goal is to deceive and to deceive you so long and to the point that you die in your deception. And then what? Is there any hope for you beyond that? No. But I want you to notice briefly the progression of the scorpion bite to the serpent tails. You see that progression? What did we talk about last week? Scorpion bite. Does it hurt? Yeah. Snake bite. Can a snake kill you? Yes. So there's a progression here. But the picture here is of spiritual wickedness. Luke 10, 17. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. This is a spiritual picture of satanic activity. And it's real. Just because it's spiritual symbolism does not mean it's not real. This is just a picture telling us about what's going on that we cannot see. Our eyes don't see this, but that doesn't mean it's less real. Notice verse 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping what? Demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. This harkens back to Exodus chapter 14. After God brings his last plague against Egypt, what was it? You remember? Egypt wailed. The nation of Egypt wailed when their firstborn died. They woke up that morning And their eldest son was dead in his bed. A terrible, terrible picture of judgment. And what happened? What did Pharaoh do? He said, this is it. I'm going to let you go. And the people of Israel left. And Israel was in such a state of mourning that they walked out unmolested. And then Pharaoh, after having a little time to ponder, what what does he do? He said, tell the people, the Lord says to Moses in in Exodus 14, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-ha-haroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. The Lord literally leads Israel to a trap, right? 
and listen to what he says. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. You remember the picture? They go out into the wilderness and what are, they're surrounded by water. Pharaoh says, I got them. I changed my mind. And God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When God brings judgment against humanity, it is to reveal his holy, righteous character. He will get glory. So the question here is, why do people worship idols which they cannot see, hear, or walk? Remember, idols are anything that make the promise to give you something that only Christ can give. You want to define what an idol is. It's it's anything that I worship or elevate in value that promises to give me something that only Christ can give. So why do people worship things that cannot see, hear, talk, or walk? Well, the scripture gives us a clue here because the animating principle behind idolatry is demon worship. You see, demons make promises. Idols don't make promises, but demons do. This is the nature of spiritual deception. I I think I told you guys this one time, but there was a young lady who came to see counsel from my dad one time, and she was tired of being poor, um, unsuccessful. And so she told my father of, of a deal that she had made in which she sold her soul. And in selling her soul, she got everything she ever wanted, and then some. She got the car that she always wanted, the convertible. She got the money. But just like Satan always does, he takes far more than he promises. And she ended up in a life of prostitution and drug use in absolute and total bondage because she made a deal with the devil. He gave her everything her heart desired. But man, did he take so much more. And there are story after story, if you look it up, of those that we put on pedestals in our culture, the stars in our culture. I've read so many testimonies where people have intimated and flat out said, yes, I made a deal with the devil. These people that we elevate in our culture because of their talents freely admit that they have made the same deal. Notice verse 21, they did not repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The primary picture of the earth dweller here is that they are lawbreakers. They are antinomians at heart. An antinomian is anti or against nomos in the Greek, which is law. These are antinomians at heart. The essence of our sin is lawbreaking. It's rebellion to God. Both tables of the law are in view here. But these are doctrines of demons. 
The doctrines of demons say I can make my own rules. I make my own laws because I sit on the throne. That's the essence of the doctrines of demons. You know what the Greek word for sorcery is here? It's the Greek word pharmacon. You know where we get pharmacon? Drug use. You say, how long is it? How long have drugs been in view? There's a, a whole history there that I won't go into. But it's extensive. It's the giving ourselves over to a substance to allow me to get insight into what is formerly hidden. It is the gateway. We talk about gateway drugs. Drugs are a gateway to communication with the enemy. And I'll give you an example of that. I heard this interview um, about a year ago, and it stuck in my head. Everybody knows Aaron Rodgers, who is a quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, maybe the Jets soon. But he was interviewed, and and, um, he had some interesting things to say. And there's a USA, USA Today article that summarized the interview. But he spoke very proudly of his drug use of um, ayahuasca. Some of you probably have never heard of that. It is a plant-based psychedelic drug um, that's it's natural. And he said this. I want you to think about all the young people that look up to him as a Hall of Fame quarterback arguably the greatest quarterback for the Green Bay Packers to ever play. And he said this, he said, for me, I didn't do that and think, oh, I'm never playing football again. No, it gave me a deep and meaningful appreciation for life. My intention, listen to this, my intention the first night going in was I wanted to feel what pure love feels like. That was my intention. And I did. I really did. I had a magical experience with the sensation of feeling of of a hundred hands on my body imparting a blessing of love and forgiveness for myself and gratitude for this life from what seemed to be my ancestors. So he has this magical experience where he feels hundreds of hands being laid on him and they seemed to be his ancestors imparting love to him. He says this, you can't do anything in this life until you really, truly, unconditionally love yourself. So what I'm reading you is doctrines of demons. We must love ourselves. So that's what I had to do. I had to surrender fully to the idea that everything I was telling myself is true. What is the philosophy of our culture? Follow your heart. He said, that's when it finally broke. I laid there on that mat. And I had made peace with the possibility that all of those things I was telling myself could possibly be true. In that reality of the worst self-talk you you can possibly imagine, feeling like the lowest human on the planet and not worthy ever in this life of unconditional love. I laid there with that reality that being my reality, that all the things I said about myself are true and are real. And I said, listen to this, is there anybody in this room who could still love me? What came through next was the voice in my head, which wasn't really my voice anymore. And it said, quote, if at your lowest of the low, these people can still love you, then you should be able 
He then said the experience helped him with his mental health. Quote, to me, one of the core tenets of your mental health is self-love. That's why ayahuasca did, or that's what ayahuasca did for me. It was to help me see how to unconditionally love myself. It is only in that unconditional self-love that I'm able to truly be able to unconditionally love others. And what better, better way to work on, this is my own belief, but what better way to work on my mental health than to have an experience like that? And they did not repent of their sorceries. That is the essence of what we're talking about here. All of that, a little leaf and herb can give you. The ability, the power to forgive my own sins. The wherewithal to love myself unconditionally. What are you saying? You're saying that I sit on the throne and I determine what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. I have declared myself to be without sin. I will ascend up into the throne of the most high. These are doctrines of demons. And the scripture says they did not repent of it. They did not repent of their sorceries. So what is the application or blessing here as we close? And we are way over time. I want you to to see this. What is the application or blessing? Rest in the sovereignty of God. We talked about this in our Bible study this morning. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. That is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The earth dweller loves this world. And the earth dweller's heart is set upon idols. The earth dweller is marked by a life of antinomianism, lawlessness. We need to remember, talked about the bad news. We need to remember that as we preach the gospel, got to include the law. Can't exclude it. Why? Because if there's no law, there's no sin. If there's no sin, I don't need a savior. Why is it popular in churches to to talk about the fact that, oh, I'm not under the law anymore? Well, what Paul is talking about when he says, I'm not under the law, not that I have no longer an obligation to thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not have any false gods, I shouldn't commit adultery. I'm still obligated to obey them, aren't I? What is he saying? I'm not under the condemnation of the law. But there are many who claim the name of Christ who say, I'm not under the law. There's a a quote, and I can't remember who says it, but free from the law, oh, happy condition. Sin all I want and still have remission. That's the, the gospel of the antinomian. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. And at the end of all of this, as we look at the summing up of all things in Christ at his return, The message of the church is still, thou shalt have no other gods before me. If there is no sin, there's no need of the gospel. Paul said, I didn't know covetousness until I read, until I knew, thou shalt not covet. But what is it? What is there for us here? And by way of encouragement, 
1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourself. There's such a tendency on our part. Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. It's so easy for us to replace the worship of the living God with something else that we can fit and shape and mold into our own likeness. Keep yourself from idols. That's John's warning to the church. But I want you to notice, without the resurrecting work of the Holy Spirit, there will will be no repentance. And if you are alive in Christ today, that is, you have been born again of the Spirit of God, you are a firsthand witness of the resurrecting power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you've taken part in the first resurrection, that is your regeneration, you will take part in the second resurrection, where he will give you a body just like himself. We talked about that on the way to church this morning. And Finley's question was, if I die right now and the Lord resurrects me later, will I still be a little boy? (laughs) Good question. But without the resurrecting work of the Holy Spirit, we would be dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's what this picture is showing us. In spite of the entire warning of God's judgment on humanity, they didn't repent. Why? Because they're dead. So what do we do in light of all of this? Well, we need to live with a sense of urgency because the day is drawing near. A couple of references as I, as I close this morning, and we'll come to the Lord's table in just a minute. Second Peter chapter 3. Where should our focus be? Brother, you talked about turning on the news and what it does to our, our psyche. The evil that is around us is tremendous. So what is the church to do? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, that is the end of all things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. What should we be worried about while the world gets worse and worse? How about us? How about me? Count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. As he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Listen, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, what? That there will be false prophets who will twist the scriptures. You know this. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So how do we take care that we're not carried away with false doctrine? Anchor yourself to this. And then he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do you do that? While the rest of the world is losing their collective minds and and excelling in lawlessness, anchor yourself right here. Then Hebrews 10, 23. Last verse, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And listen to this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Purposefully, the church of Jesus Christ should be thinking about how we can encourage each other in light of the fact that the day of the Lord is drawing near, how can we encourage each other? Well, he gives us some advice here. Not really advice, more of a command. 
Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The incredible importance of you and I being here together. You say, I don't have anything to offer. That's not what this says. What does this say? Don't neglect to, to meet together as is the habit of son, but encourage one another. Do you realize that your presence, your faithful presence, Together here is an encouragement. It is. Say, but I don't have words. I'm not a person of of many words. I don't know how to talk. You know, Moses used that excuse as well. I'm not, are, are you saying that the Holy Spirit hasn't equipped you with gifts? Yeah, yes. And we're to come together to use them to encourage each other. All the more as you see what? The day drawing near. Is the Lord Jesus coming soon? Yes, he is. We don't know the day, but in the meantime, we're to anchor ourselves to this. We're to grow in grace. We're to encourage each other. We're to edify each other. And we are to trust him to meet our needs because he will keep us in this wicked and ungodly generation. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that we have of the fact that you are coming to judge this world. Lord, humanly speaking, we think about your judgment and we think, how is it that so many are not spared judgment? Father, we marvel at that sometimes, but what we should really marvel at is, how is it that you have forgiven my sins? How is it that you have saved me? Thank you for your amazing grace. We praise you for it this morning. We thank you that you have given us spiritual life, eyes to see, ears to hear. We pray, Lord, that you will apply your word as you sovereignly determine this morning. That you will equip your people to live in a way that's pleasing to you as we leave here today. We ask this in your name. Amen.